Do you ever struggle with spiritual apathy? I think if we're honest, it's something that all Christians wrestle with from time to time. And when we're in the middle of a spiritual rut, we can quickly start to question our faith and wonder if things will ever change. In our interview today, I'm talking with Uche Anazor, Associate Professor of Theology at Talbot School of Theology and the author of Overcoming Apathy, Gospel Hope for Those Who Struggle to Care. Uche and I discuss his own story of wrestling hard with apathy, seven deadly causes of spiritual apathy that we should all be on the lookout for in our own lives, and how to take steps back toward God when we realize that we're not doing well. Let's get started. Well, Uche, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway Podcast. Great to be here. So spiritual apathy seems like one of those, maybe we'll call it a vice, uh, maybe that's not the right word for it, but it's one of those things that we don't often discuss, at least in my experience in the church, at least not as often as we discuss a whole host of other struggles that we often face as Christians. And yet it strikes me that this topic is it's a pretty prevalent thing that we've all experienced in some way or another at different seasons. Uh, so I wonder if you could first define what would you say spiritual apathy actually is, simply, and then why don't you think we talk about it very much in the church? Those are really good questions. Um, yeah, so I'm defining spiritual apathy as something that's more than those sort of temporary feelings of, you know, I'm not excited about church or I'm not excited about reading my Bible or something along those lines that it, it's it's more of like a prolonged state of just not wanting to engage in the things of God whether whether it is things like reading scripture or or whatever but it, just not not really having the sort of energy desire motivation to engage in them and so it, it's kind of a prolonged feeling of stuckness like you're just not able to sort of get up in the morning to, to face the things that, that um, you know, God has called you to and the things that would, that would actually bring flourishing to your life and to the life of other, other people. Um, and so on one level, it's, it's something that every Christian experiences in the sense that um, we all have periods of time where we just feel like we're not loving God and pursuing God the way that we ought to. And that's, that's if you're a Christian, you should probably feel that a lot of times in your life, but but, but spiritual apathy is, is something a little bit more than than just that feeling. It's mm. it's it's a it's a long period of time where you're you're stuck in that mode. Do you feel like there's a sense in which you've struggled to like identify? You know, is this apathy in that sense, or is this just sort of I'm having an off week and I don't need to be overly concerned? How how do you how do you walk that line? Yeah, it's 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 difficult to discern it uh, sometimes um, in yourself. Like I, I, I think it's easy for me to discern when I'm working with other people and mm. I've seen over the course of several meetings, for instance, if, if I'm mentoring somebody and I see over the course of several meetings that this person is giving me the same answer to like, um, what's the deal with church? What's the deal with scripture? What's the deal with prayer? What's the deal with whatever? And it's always the same answer. Um, it's always, I don't know. I, I'm just not really into it. I don't know. I just don't really want to do it. I look at that and I'm like, okay, there's something going on there. Now, it may be something more profound, like depression or something along those lines. But in, but in, in, in many cases, it's more than, um, or it's it's not so much this sort of clinical depression. There, there's something else at play. And so part of what I'm trying to do in the book is identify this 
particular thing? Like, what is this particular thing? And so you have to be able to say, okay, it's not depression. It's not the dark night of the soul. What is this thing? And so I'm just trying to call this thing apathy. It's, it's a spiritual mm. blahness towards God and towards the things of God. Yeah. So do you resonate with, with my comment uh, before that this is maybe a topic that doesn't seem like we discuss very often in the church? We kind of, it just doesn't raise to the level of like, let's let's keep this on our mind. Yeah. So we talk about it indirectly, perhaps. So, so for instance, if a preacher gets up there and he wants to give a message on evangelism, he'll say, you know, like, the church is asleep on evangelism or the, the church is, doesn't really care about engaging the lost, right? Mm, um, yeah. That's sort of an indirect way of saying the church is apathetic toward X. You know, it's to- yeah. apathetic towards evangelism. So there's a sense in which we talk about it, but we talk about it as it pertains to particular items or particular um, disciplines of the Christian life. So yeah. read your Bible more. Why aren't we reading our Bible more? We just don't care about reading our Bible more. Apathy. Um, yeah. But have we given like serious reflection on um, how pervasive this is and when it does cross the line from just sort of common Christian experience to something that's a little bit more maybe insidious and more harmful um, to a Christian? I'm, I'm not sure if we have those kinds of conversations in church. Yeah. I, I'm also struck that when we say things like, why aren't we more excited about evangelism? Why aren't we, you know, we need to be reading our Bibles more it's, it's that corporate language that is so valuable and true as churches, and yet it can maybe be a way to distance this issue from ourselves. Like, it's, it's different to say, we as a church are apathetic about our Bibles, versus saying, I am apathetic in my Bible reading. Yeah, and, and it, it, is, it is hard to own it, right? And so um, I, I see a phenomenon like this. Like, for instance, when you have accountability groups, for instance, you, you often have guys— or gals who, who will get together and they all share the same issue. And those are the kinds of people you, you want to have accountability groups with because they're all going to say, yeah, dude, I totally get it. And actually not hold you accountable in any meaningful sense to, to, to the things <laughs> yeah. that, that you're, that you're either apathetic to, or you're, you're very much uh, engaging in. And so there, there is a sense in which, um, we do want to distance ourselves from the reality that we may just be blah towards God and then having to do the work of how do I get out of this negative, negative place, you know? And that feels like that's one of the trickiest things about this topic of apathy is that we, we might identify, yes, I have this problem. This isn't right. And yet the problem itself is like working against our desire to fix the problem. That's exactly right. (laughs) Yeah. And and that's why I, I don't think there's just really easy solutions. Like I, I think we we get to a place of apathy slowly, and so coming out of it is is going to be a slower process rather huh. than um, just doing a couple quick sort of how tos and then somehow jumping out of a, an apathetic place. Yeah, which kind of strikes at the heart of how we are so conditioned to think in our culture, especially as Americans, uh, that there is there's got to be a quick solution. If I can't find a quick solution, or if what I try doesn't have a quick effect. I get discouraged. I give up. I, it, it doesn't feel like it's worth it. Yeah. And that's something I wrestled with, with, with this book. I, I would have loved to have been able to come up with like two or three things you do and it works for everybody. And as I started to work through like understanding what apathy was and all that kind of stuff, I realized, no, nah, this is going to be about forming people. And the only way you, only way you can get out of 
you know, whatever vice or whatever issue that, that seems like a prevalent, pervasive issue in your life, the only way you can get out of it is through a process and not just some sort of like event happening and, and decisively changing it. God may do that, but it's more highly likely that you're going to have to like work through a process in cooperation with God and his spirit um, to be able to come the kind of, become the kind of person that is not apathetic, um, mm. but it's not going to be a simple process. Yeah. So you write in the book that you are, quote, intimately acquainted with the topic of spiritual apathy. So I wonder if you could share a little bit about your own story of struggling with this. Yeah. So um, in my late teens, you know, I became a Christian in my late teens and um, went away to university and uh, as a brand new Christian, got involved in the campus ministry, Campus Crusade for Christ. Um, and it really just transformed my life. It, it, I got mentored. I got taught how to share my faith. I was being discipled in all these different kinds of cool ways, mission trips and whatever. Um, but one thing really uh, struck me um, a few years into my involvement, uh, I just started to feel like I don't share the same kind of passion that I sense the people in this room are sharing about whatever it is, evangelism, about, you know, discipling, about whatever it is. I, I just felt like my passion is not there. And because that feeling persisted for so long, um, I just thought, okay, well, my main spiritual vice is I'm an apathetic Christian. Um, and I don't know what to do about that, but that's just what I am. And so th that's what I would echo and re repeat to people year after year after year. What's so you told people that. Yeah, I told people that. I, I told people, like, m I think my main vice as a Christian, I, I probably have several main vices, but the one that really sticks out to me is I'm apathetic and I, and I, can't, I can't get out of it. And, and I feel so much more shame about it because here I am doing campus ministry um, as a student. And then I was on staff with Crusade as well. And here I, here I am trying to help other people be passionate about the lost and about the, about the nations and about all these kinds of things, but feeling like my heart just can't get there. And I, I, I wake up in the morning and I feel a, a sense of like dread in, in facing my day of having to go out there and share my faith. And so some of that is just fear, the typical fears of having to like do evangelism. But some of that felt a little bit more um, problematic to me. And so... Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's my own personal journey with it, and uh, I've I've obviously encountered it as well among among the young men that I've worked with over the years. Um, feeling like, yeah, I, I I get you. I I share this. I've shared this pervasive sense of like, blah towards yeah. towards God. So, in your experience as a uh, working on uh, on a campus, and then you, you're a professor as well of theology, and presumably interacting with a lot of young people. Um, how common is this? Are these struggles with apathy uh, among Christians? I would say, like, I I think this is probably other than the typical kinds of things you hear, like you know, struggling with sexual sin and things like that. I would say, like, this is this is the the one thing I hear most often. Yeah. I don't want to engage with fill in the blank, whether it's prayer or evangelism or it's church or it's reading it's reading the scriptures or it's whatever it is like these these things that um, as Christians we would all say yep these are the most important things these are the things that bring us close into communion with God these are the means of grace and whatnot there's just this resistance um, that we have toward it and that's just one of the more perplexing things but I, I see it as pretty common mm. So in the book, you included a couple lines from a song that you actually wrote uh, in your journal 
during one of these seasons of, of feeling pretty apathetic as a young person. And you say in the book that it was a song that summed up your 20s in a really uh, profound way. So I wonder if you could read a couple of those lines from the book that you wrote. And then I'd love to hear your thoughts on those now. Sure. All right. Um, it goes, wake me up. I don't know that I'm sleeping. Wake me up because I'm dead unawares. Wake me up because I've fallen asleep and I don't care. Wake me up because my life seems a duty. Wake me up because I can't mean a prayer. Wake me up because I can't see your beauty and I don't care. Yeah, so that, that song um, was trying to capture sort of like two competing realities in my life. So on the one hand, I knew, I knew in my heart of hearts that God was beautiful, worthy of all my attention and devotion and these kinds of things. So I knew that, and I, and I knew that in my heart of hearts. But I also knew in my heart of hearts that my response to those enormous realities was just woefully inadequate. But I knew at the same time, like, I can't get myself out of this. And so, and so I'm, I'm praying that God, please help me to get out of it. I'm writing the song as, as a way of sort of like trying to do battle with this apathy, um, but still recognizing that I'm in need of divine grace. If it's going to happen, I, I really need God's, God's help. Hmm. I think so often when we struggle with things, at least uh, in our spiritual lives, I think some of us have grown up in church contexts where the answer was always, believe the gospel, trust the gospel, or, or even like your, your theology, you know, you need to understand better what God has done and who you are. And, and I, I guess I wonder, can you resonate with that? Is that the way you thought? It seems like you kind of are acknowledging in this song the, maybe the more difficult reality that you kind of knew the right answers. It wasn't like you didn't know something. It's just your feelings weren't there. So do you think sometimes we kind of over-intellectualize the Christian faith and even the gospel? Yeah, I think that's, that's really, really insightful. Yeah, I, 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 I certainly felt like I, I know the answer. The answer is love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's the answer. The answer is Jesus loves you and the gospel, you know, in the gospel you are set free, those kinds of things. And I echo those things in my book. Um, however, um, I knew that there was something more and that, that there's, there's a deep mystery when, when we start to think about how do we stir our, our affections? How do we change our desires? There's, there's a mystery there. Um, there is some work that we have to do. We cooperate with God to some degree, but there, there really does need to be a decisive working of God that, that, that supersedes, that transcends even our, our, our knowledge. Mm. Um, of what's right and what's true about him. Yeah. You dedicate your book to John Piper, who is, you know, well known as someone who has, you know, not just built uh, his own ministry at his church, but even a, a broader ministry through Desiring God on this kind of idea that, that the Christian life is fundamentally a life of affection towards God in, in, in a real sense. Do you feel like Piper has helped to shape some of these senses, or this maybe how you would address the problem of apathy that you saw in your life? Yeah, so I don't know John Piper at all. I, I've just listened to his sermons and, and read his books, especially in, in, in my 20s. Um, but his vision that largely draws from, from Jonathan Edwards has profoundly given a real shape to my life. So um, it's, it's very easy to read Piper and feel like, man, like you're putting a lot of pressure on me to, to, to be passionate and zealous all the time. 
but what I've actually found in Piper is is a is a real sense of the goal here, um, the the highest good really is to find our contentment and our satisfaction and our joy in who God is for us in Christ. That's just true. However, he talks about it being a fight. And so that sort of fighting for joy um, theme that, that you'll see in the last chapter of my book, it, it does draw from him to some degree. He, he's not quoted extensively or anything like that, but, but, but the general sort of ethos, the general sort of way of approaching joy um, is, is drawing from, from Piper. Yeah, yeah. So in, in the book, you talk about this culture of apathy that surrounds us. Um, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so I try to present the sort of irony I feel um, sort of pervades our culture. So the irony is we're not, pa- we're not excuse me, we're not apathetic about everything. We're just kind of apathetic about things that really, really matter. Um, and so that's the, that's the case in the culture broadly, and that's the case in Christian culture. And so we, we can find ourselves super passionate about, you know, someone's TikTok diss or um, what's going on in, in, in the celebrity universe or these kinds of things that are completely trivial, completely meaningless. And our hearts can get super exercised about them and super excited about them, which is just fascinating. But, but when it comes to things that are truly meaningful, oftentimes, this is not everybody, of course, but like oftentimes we, we can find ourselves just kind of yawning and feeling like like these meaningful things are just, are just passe and we don't want to engage in that. And secondly, like I, I think when I talk about a culture of apathy, I, I think there's a certain amount of, I guess, cultural cachet you get f- for basically being authentic and saying, yeah, you know, I kind of find myself just kind of blah about this stuff. And, and we can just kind of leave it at, yeah, dude, I, I totally feel you. We're both, we're all just kind of blah. And, and that's just the way that it is. And, and you can sort of be applauded for being authentic when authenticity is clearly not the goal. The, the goal is love for God. That's the mm. goal. And so um, I, I, I do think there's, there, there is a certain amount of, um, the culture allows for and sometimes could even applaud a certain amount of apathy towards things that really matter. Yeah, that's such an interesting observation, insightful observation about how we, yeah, our culture on the one hand is incredibly apathetic about important things. But on the other hand, we, we've all talked a lot about in the last few years, the kind of the outrage culture that exists, maybe particularly on social media. And so often it does seem, you know, there are important conversations being had, but so often it seems like there can be this dialing in on little tiny things and um, yeah, maybe like secondary issues. And then the main issue is kind of left unaddressed. What's behind that? Do you think, can you put on your psychologist hat a little bit and try to help us understand why you think that we, I think all of us to some extent can be so prone to, to be so passionate about sort of a secondary thing while ignoring the big thing? Yeah, I don't know. I I think there, there could be a couple of of things, a couple of reasons. One is that um, sometimes apathy is a coping mechanism, right? So if there are things that we feel we're just so bombarded by the meaningful, right? So bombarded by these really, you know, astronomically large, meaningful things, a coping mechanism is to basically distance yourself from it to the point where you stop caring about it. And so I, I think that could be at play in the hearts of some people, right? So as you, if, if you listen to 20 or 24 hour news, they're always talking about 
well, oftentimes they're talking about big things, but they're talking about it like all the time. Yeah. And so you can become numb to the meaningful when you're constantly being bombarded by the meaningful. Um, so that, that could be part of it. You, you could also find yourself numbed to the to these big meaningful things um, by being overly bombarded by trivial things. And I, I think we're constantly bombarded by trivial things. And so rather than just sort of spitting out the trivial things, we spit out everything because yeah. we're, we're just kind of kind of tired. Um, those are a couple of things that come to mind. Maybe that doesn't answer yeah. the question. but Yeah. When it comes to this big topic of apathy, but then also particularly applied in like our spiritual lives, how important is it to identify the cause or the causes of that apathy? You know, is there always a defined cause that we should be able to isolate and then kind of address? Or is it sometimes we're not really going to know, it's not that clear, but we still need to kind of take steps? Yeah, I, I think it's important that we identify causes. So, so I'll say, it, say that in the plural, right? So I don't think it's going to be easy to pinpoint anything to one cause. I, don't, I think life is way too complicated. Our, our souls are way too complicated. Um, and so we need to be able to identify a general range of the kinds of things that, that, are, at, that are at work um, causing us to feel this or that away, right? And so when it comes to apathy, in, in the book, I identify um, seven causes of apathy, these call are, them seven seven deadly causes. Seven deadly causes, right? Yeah, and so I, I don't see these as like the exhaustive list of of, of the only causes toward apathy, but um, I'm trying to generate sets of sets of ideas or possible sort of causes so that we can do this sort of diagnostic work and say, okay, so um, what are the things that 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 I most resonate with in terms of like the, the ways in which I think apathy is being developed in my life. And then if, if I'm able to say, okay, so apathy is, is a pervasive issue in my life because I am constantly bombarded by meaningless things. I love the trivial. I am on, I am on Instagram all the time. I'm constantly on, the, on checking everybody's Twitter feed. Then we're able to say, okay, there, there is a crisis of meaning in my life in the sense, or, or a crisis of meaningful things. I, I need to I need to cultivate a sense of like the meaningful again because I've mm. lost that. Um, now, is there one way to do it? No, there are a number of ways you can do it. And I, I suggest a number of ways um, in, in my book, but we, we need to be able to identify the causes of our illnesses if we're ever going to be able to um, sort of rectify them or heal them. And, and so just like in, uh, if you have a physical ailment, oftentimes there might be one particular cause, but more often than not, there's more than one cause. Um, so the, the causes may be stress. But why stress? Because I, I haven't gotten enough, enough sleep. Well, why haven't you gotten enough sleep? Well, because of anxiety. Well, why are you anxious? I don't know. Maybe I'm drinking too much coffee. There are, there are an, a number of different things at play that, that might contribute to the, the, the particular illness. But y you have to be able to identify at least mm -hmm. some of the causes if, if you're going to have any or make any progress in rectifying. Yeah. Yeah, I'm struck that we, you said a minute ago that we are complicated, and uh, that's something that we all kind of know intuitively, but I feel like, at least for me, I can sometimes sort of deny that truth in, how I, in the work I'm willing to put into diagnosing the things that I'm struggling with. Uh, I, I wonder, maybe in the, in the interest of even illustrating a couple of these deadly causes that you list in the book, if you think back to your own struggle with apathy, maybe in your 20s, let's say, are there a couple, two or three of those causes that you feel like were the primary things at play in your own life? Yeah. So um, 
I identify doubt as one of the causes. So um, this may seem like a no-brainer, but I'll just try to make the connections for us. So, so if I doubt the goodness of God, or if I doubt the reality of God, if I doubt um, that Jesus Christ is the only way, that's going to have um, a ripple effect in how I approach things like prayer and evangelism. If Jesus Christ is not the only way, or, or, or at least I'm having doubts about that, for whatever reason I'm having these doubts, they, they, they may be intellectual, they may just be emotional doubts or whatever they are, but for whatever reason I have these doubts, I need to, I need to address them because they're going to get directly in the way of me wanting to engage in mm. these very important Christian things, right? And so doubt for me has been, has been a long time in and out sort of struggle um, throughout not just my 20s, but beyond my 20s. Can I actually ask you a question about doubt in particular? Because I think what you just said about you know, the importance of addressing those doubts, you know, facing them head on and trying to resolve them to some extent, that feels like that kind of flies in the face of a lot of the talk that we hear today, even from Christians who would sort of say, embrace your doubts. You know, your doubts are almost a, sometimes it feels like they're a good thing because they, maybe they speak to the genuineness of your faith or they, they are uh, evidence that you're not just believing what someone told you to believe. Um, So how do you think about that? That's a great question. Yeah, so there's a temptation again in our in our culture of authenticity to to want to oversell that particular viewpoint and, and say doubt is a glorious thing and continue to sort of dwell in your doubts and be real and all that kind of stuff. And and and, and while doubts are normal and lots of people deal with doubts, we don't want to glorify doubt as if doubt is the ideal, right? Um, so mm. even when Jesus addresses Thomas's doubt, his goal is to get Thomas away from doubting, right? Doubting is not the ideal state of being. Belief yeah. is, is, is the ideal state of being. However... Because because doubt is... I mean, would you say that doubt is kind of uh, not... Is the opposite of faith, right? It, it is sort of... It is the lack of faith to some extent. It's it sort of dawdles between unbelief and faith. It's kind of like, mm. it's kind of in between there. It's kind, it's kind of the way that I, I cast it in the book. It, it's sort of a suspension belief un, between unbelief and, and, and full-orbed faith. And so you're kind of in this place where you want to believe, but you're just, you're hindered for whatever reason, intellectual or, or emotional or whatever. Um, and so the doubt needs, the doubt needs to be addressed in whatever way um, it can be addressed. And so Part of this is pinpointing, like, so, so what's the source of my doubt? And, and even at times that can be difficult. Sometimes you might, you may need a wise counselor to help you say, no, it's not intellectual doubt you're dealing with. It's like something, something else that's going on that, that, that's maybe more deep and more profound. But you have, you have to deal with it um, because doubt gets in the way of engaging, engaging with, with, with the God that you're doubting. Yeah. So as you think about your own, uh, your own struggle there, with any other particular causes uh, that come to mind? Yeah. Um, there's a, a cause I talk about that, that has to do with feeling inadequate. Um, this general feeling of feeling inadequate or, or being overwhelmed by my inadequacies. And so um, there are times when I felt like I am inadequate to be able to make a change in this or that a scenario. It could be a family scenario. It could be um, in a ministry scenario. And so then what, what happens when, when I feel inadequate or I, or I feel overwhelmed by my inability to make a change? I just start to disengage. 
right? And one of the things I try to say in the book is that when you disengage from something and you continue to disengage from it, you become increasingly numb to the very thing you're disengaging from and, and, and it spirals. Yeah. And so I, I, I've seen that in my life where when I doubt that I have any real agency to, to make something happen in my own spiritual life or in the lives of others or whatever, then I disengage and, 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 and that contributes to a feeling of, of apathy toward it. My guess is there are so many people listening right now who are just nodding along. They they know exactly these feelings. I think it's so helpful to to kind of put words even, put categories to some of these things that we all experience in different ways, both in our spiritual lives, but probably also in our work lives, in our family lives, in our, our broader relationships. Um, are there insights from the world of psychology that can help us to better understand our struggles with apathy? You mentioned depression a few minutes ago. And that's obviously not always what's going on, but but how much should we be opening up our horizon to maybe acknowledging some of these other things that could be affecting our spiritual lives? Yeah, so one of the most helpful things for me um, as I've tried to process um, my 20s and my 30s was actually doing some counseling. And in doing some counseling, I was able to sort of sift through what was really going on in my 20s. Like, was it actually apathy? And the conclusion I came to was, um, no, I had mild depression or I was experiencing mild depression um, in, my, in my 20s. And it was tied to a number of issues or whatever um, in, in my past. But I was, I was dealing with actual depression. And so it, it wasn't just that it wasn't so much that I, I, I didn't want to engage with the spiritual. It was like there was like just this, this perfect, this pervasive blah over all my life, um, that that just affected the spiritual as well, mm. right? And so, what's what psychological categories can help us do is is just think more clearly or have a little bit more precision in our in our thoughts. So depression and, and apathy are going to overlap, but they don't overlap entirely. And so so someone could be apathetic and not and not deal with depression. Depression has to do with with a, a, a large-scale pervasive sense of blah. Um, it, it's tied to things like su- suicidal ideation and those kinds of things that are just not necessarily true of apathy. But there, there's, yeah. a, there's a real overlap, and apathy could be a symptom of depression. And so some precision is helpful because take, for instance, if I'm really dealing with depression but, the, but apathy is a, is a symptom, I really need to deal with the depression. If I'm going to get yeah. at the apathy, I think some Christians could hear you say all that and and say that yeah, but the concern that I have with sometimes bringing in these psychological categories and concepts is that they can at times and, and maybe they would say in our culture today is a great example of that they can be used kind of as an excuse for a, a sinful pattern in our life or just a, a a just a straightforward we don't care enough about God and His Word because. Uh, because of all these other more mundane things, we're distracted by other things in our lives, and and yet we can then kind of turn to these psychological categories that maybe remove some of the burden, some of the responsibility from us. How, how would you respond to that concern? Yeah, that's that's really well said. Um, I think the problem with psychological categories is all. Well, one of the key problems is when we see ourselves as the category, or we allow ourselves to to, to be. I'm, you know, I'm a depressive, or I'm, an, I'm just an apathetic person, and if we do that, what we do is we we lock ourselves in a static position or in a static place, rather than seeing this as something that we are battling. So rather than using the language of I am struggling or trying to 
be healed of apathy, depression, etc., we say, I am this. Well, if you are this, then then you have no responsibility or you have less responsibility to not be that because it's your identity. And no one's going to tell you, lose your identity. But 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 if if someone says, no, like, I, I am this Christian person, legitimately, I love Jesus, but I am struggling with X, then that's the kind of language of someone who says, okay, this doesn't define me, and I, I actually want to see movement in this. It may be ridiculously difficult to see movement in it, but I want to see movement in it. So I, I think that I think they're different, and, and I can understand people's anxiety with psychological categories, but um, categories, in my view, are just ways to group things that sh- that that share a certain kind, a set of symptoms or whatever. It's, but they're not like given. They given, don't absolve us of responsibility. Yeah, they're, and they're not given. You know, from God to Moses on the mountaintop. They're they're just human observation. Um, that might be helpful in us being able to sort of categorize wh- where we're at and the symptoms that are that are true of us, and then dealing with those symptoms. Yeah, have you ever struggled in your life or seen others struggle with maybe over-diagnosing spiritual apathy in our lives? You know, where we feel like we're wrestling with something, we're trying to do something maybe the way that we've always done it in our spiritual lives, and it's just not working well for maybe all kinds of reasons. And you initially thought, oh, I'm struggling with apathy here. And then maybe you realized, maybe not. Maybe that's maybe that's just like, I need to change how I do stuff because my life is different now. You know what I'm asking? Yeah, I do. And I, I've seen that, not so much perhaps as it's tied to apathy, um, but maybe if I think about it for a second, yeah, it, it might be apathy that that people might sort of diagnose themselves with. I've seen people get into 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 ruts, and and the ruts are tied to precisely what you just said. Like th- things have changed, you know, um, new rhythms have to be established. New things are going to stir your heart um, that didn't stir your heart before, and the things that stirred your heart before don't stir your heart now because you're a dynamic human being and you're constantly changing and life circumstances rub on you and they change you so that you respond certain ways to certain things at different different times in your life in your life so the overdiagnosis could be a problem there when when we um are for lack of a better term too harsh on ourselves we look at look at ourselves as failing in this or that a way when in fact we just need to make some tweaks yeah and, and allow ourselves to make to make these tweaks um in our spiritual practices I feel like I've heard a lot of Christians sort of, you know, share stories along kind of the exact same storyline, you know, of like, hey, in college, I was in a Bible study every week, and I spent, you know, 45 minutes to an hour every morning reading my Bible with a friend, and I prayed for an hour, and then, and then they kind of testify to as they got older and got a, a job, and then maybe got married and had kids, like those kinds of things just haven't been able to continue in the way that they did before. And they can feel that sense of guilt and sort of a, did, what have I lost? I don't feel like I'm on fire for sharing my faith on campus like I used to be. I, I, do you think that that is a common thing that we're, we are too hard on ourselves? Or is it like, no, we need to be realistic that we have oftentimes gotten distracted from things? Yeah, so I think it's both and, right? So I, I think... We don't want to let ourselves off the hook. So there, there is a thing called youthful zeal, and youthful zeal can be good and bad. Um, but, but there's a thing called youthful zeal, right? So one year younger, and there's 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 more energy, less responsibility, these kinds of things. You're able to engage with these sort of spiritual practices practices in a way that is just far more um, energetic, for lack of a better term, right? 
then you get older, you get some responsibilities, you get jobs and bills and kids and and other like mental burdens that are that are that are significant. And, mm. and can those things wear on you? Certainly. And so might there be a call to sort of reclaim some of that youthful zeal? Yes, perhaps. But on, on the flip side, zeal is going to be displayed differently as a 20-something, likely, than it's going to look in someone that's 45, 55, 65. The, the inner core of the zeal hasn't ch- maybe hasn't changed. There's still just a, a love for God. But the way that we are, we're going to express our love for God might be different given our particular life circumstances. So, for instance, in my life, you know, I used to identify myself as, as, as apathetic, then realized I wasn't apathetic. But even in those states of me being apathetic in my 20s, I would have said I was still out there going, af- going after it. I was praying passionately, worshiping, and all these different kinds of things. But I, I would say at this stage in my life, at, at 45, I'm far less apathetic than I was in my 20s. But I don't display it in the, in the yeah. same ways. It, right. it's, so, so my love for God is expressed in um, these, these more sort of like steady faithful kinds of things rather than, than, than in these bursts of exuberance. Mm. And so I, I think there has to be some latitude given for things change when you get older. They just do. Um, and even you, you change as you get older. Personality shifts as you get older. So, so, so you want to allow for some of that while at the same time holding that tension of saying, God is worth loving. And so whatever it looks like to love God and to love him wholeheartedly Try to do that. If that looks like what it looked like in your 20s, then try to re-engage that as, as best as you can and cry out to the Lord for that. But if it's not that, then try to discover what it looks like to love the Lord as a 45 or whatever, 50-year-old. Mm. You mentioned like bursts of exuberance, and it just makes me think of kind of the, the quintessential, at least in my circles, the quintessential you know, Christian youth group experience of sort of going to the, the Christian camp, and they got the music there, and you're, you're there, and you like you give your life to the Lord and maybe for the seventh time (laughs) and, and, and you come home and you're so, or maybe a mission trip does this. You're so excited. You're so passionate. And then, you know, almost every time, you know, a few weeks later on, you know, you sort of have lost a lot of that zeal. And it it just does speak to the, sometimes we can have unrealistic expectations and we, we don't even realize maybe the role that our emotions are playing in stuff. Uh, and we need to have a little bit more realistic view of, of these things. Yeah, I think I think that's right. And I, and I think God, in in His kindness, He He knows our frame, and so He knows the eighteen year old or the twenty year old needs certain sets of of experiences, right? Um, but He's not going to replicate those experiences in, in the exact same way um, mm. into your into your thirties and your forties because the experiences are meant to launch you into into the ordinary. They're they're, yeah. they're, they're, they're meant to just be that catapult so that you actually want to. to walk with God in the mundane and in the ordinary of your everyday Christianity. It's, it's kind of like, I'm not going to get engaged to my wife 30 times. I'm not going to get married to her 30 times. I'm going to get married to her once. I'm going to get engaged to her once. But but, th- but those experiences launch me into into the good stuff. And the good stuff is is the mundane. And, and sometimes mm. we, we might be too hard on ourselves when we feel like our lives are are too mundane as Christians. I, th- I think oftentimes yeah. that's actually the, the place that God wants you to be in, in, in the day-to-day plod that, that, that feels less than exciting. But it's the yeah. good stuff. We are so conditioned as, again, maybe as Americans, uh, to to chase after those experiences, and we really don't like the mundane. We don't like the ordinary. Yeah. Well, Uche, could you maybe speak as a final question to the person listening right now who 
who is who's heard all of this and would have to confess after hearing this that yeah I think I am struggling with apathy and I I both acknowledge that and also as you said in your song I I don't care sometimes what would you say to that person as like you know a final word of encouragement yeah so I I would say a couple things first your apathy doesn't define you um, what defines you is is what God has said about you and what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. That's that's what defines you. And that even for those who find themselves numb to God, that God actually still cares. And that God is actually engaged with you even when you say you don't care. And even when in your heart you don't care. That God is still engaged with you as a Christian. And so you you can have this this hope that um, undergirding um, your spiritual growth and your climb out of this pit of apathy is a God who is far more caring, far more, far more engaged with your heart than even you might be. Hmm. But then I would also say that this same God, his grace propels us to actually engage with our apathy, to, to do some work. But that work is, is, again, it's empowered by God's spirit, and so we are those who are who are loved by God, and God God is engaged with us. But at the same time, He's saying, "Work with me here. Work with me. <laughs> that I've given you everything you need to li- to live a godly life in Christ Jesus." And so then, let's think about what might it mean to cultivate a heart, cultivate a life that is maybe less prone to apathy, or if if I'm currently in, in a state of apathy, what does it take to slowly cultivate those things that help me climb out of there. But God is God is with you even in even in in trying to cultivate those those sort of virtues in your life. You're not just doing them as someone who is 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 trying to de- to develop habits as a um you know by their flesh, but you're doing it as someone who really is empowered by the spirit of of God. Mm. Yeah, and and I think as a first step in that work that we do with God, empowered by His Spirit, it's it's even identifying the problem and trying to figure out the causes, which I think you've helped us do here today, and, and you do so well in the book itself. So, Uche, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was Uche Anazor on Spiritual Apathy. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, Overcoming Apathy, Gospel Hope for Those Who Struggle to Care. Pick up your copy of the book for 30% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org slash plus. That's crossway.org slash plus. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.